We are not going to read the text this morning. Uh, there's actually two reasons for that. One is for the sake of time, and the other is for the truth that there are a bunch of names in here that I or no one else really knows for sure how to pronounce. So we'll just let you struggle through that yourself in your own quiet time. I would like to begin this morning by introducing you to a name and an individual, a name that I can pronounce and an individual of some significance. An individual who I'm guessing probably very few, if any, uh, are familiar with. Helen Lemel was born in 1863. She was born in England. When she was 12 years old, her family moved to the United States, actually to Wisconsin. Great insight there, by the way. Uh, but Helen, from an early age, distinguished herself as a very gifted vocalist. She earned a, a reputation for that. She traveled throughout the Midwest holding concerts. In 1907, she moved to Germany. And the reason for her move was that she might continue her education to uh, increase her abilities and her skill as a vocalist. While she was there, she met and married an individual who uh, is described simply as a wealthy European gentleman. She and her husband lived there in Germany as she continued her studies for four years and then she returned to the United States, or they returned to the United States, with apparently a smooth road, a wonderful life ahead of them. All of that was to change dramatically. For shortly after their return to the United States, Helen Lemel went blind. And now with a blind wife, her husband chose not to support her, but rather he deserted her, leaving her financially destitute. But Helen, though now alone, now blind, now financially destitute, and with all of her hopes and dreams, as it pertains to this life, seemingly dashed, continued to serve the Lord. She wrote the words to over 500 hymns, and at the age of 97, she was still serving her church in Seattle, Washington, on the day that she died. Someone commenting on her life said this, Helen died materially impoverished, but spiritually wealthy in Christ Jesus, her savior. The question that I ask myself and want to explore with you this morning in an expanded sense is what was it that enabled Helen Lemel to live such a transformed life? 
Just a reminder, as Pastor Aaron has shared with us, and we may be familiar with, in the book of Romans chapter 12, we are told to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word conformed means to be shaped by outward pressures, outward realities. The transformation is that change, that transformation that takes place because something inside is motivating and enabling that change. This transformed life that we see in Helen Lemel is the same transformed life that Pastor Aaron has been leading us to examine in the context of the Christian family. It's also this transformed life which we see in the life of the Apostle Paul. So the question is, what was it that enabled this transformed life? And I submit to you this morning that that is a critically important question. And it's critically important because of this. Too often we consider what a transformed life looks like, but leave unanswered the question, how do we get there? How do we get there? What that life looks like tells us the what, but it doesn't unlock the how. And I think it's important that we address that issue. In a few moments, as we look at Acts chapter 20, we're going to look at the evidence of that transformed life of Paul. But before we do that, I'd like to take just a moment to address this issue of how do we get there? Because I think it's critically important. In order to do that, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to several different passages, some of which will be on the screen. So if you don't want to turn there, your discretion. I think one of the most insightful and helpful book or verses in the entire scriptures for me personally, beneficial in the development of my walk with the Lord, is this verse that is found in Psalm 27 and verse 4. It's the testimony of David. There we read, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire, which some translations translate that, to meditate in his temple. Several observations that I would make from this verse. First of all, the one thing, it is the highest priority. Of all of the things that David could have asked or inquired of the Lord, what did he see as being the most important? What was the one thing, if he only had one request, would he have asked of the Lord? And the answer is found in this verse. Secondly, 
And by the way, David was a man just like ourselves in some ways, in other ways perhaps more, more demands were placed on him than any of us will ever face. The pressures of being the king, the allurements of because he was king, having all that was offered to him by way of luxury and advantage available in his day. A second observation, all the days, which simply means that this was not something that David thought of occasionally, but rather that he saw the importance of the request that he made to be of such significance that this was something that he needed, this inquiring or meditating on the beauty of the Lord continually. It was essential to how he lived. It was essential to the achieving of this transformed life of which we speak. And finally, the word gaze. Gaze indicates that it wasn't just a fleeting exposure, a passing thought. When we gaze upon something, we are intentional and we are focused and we are thinking specifically of that which we are gazing upon. It was an in-depth meditation upon the beauty of the Lord. Certainly, what we admire in David's life as a man of God was achieved as a result of the fact that David lived what he asked from God. We see another example of this in the book of Exodus. And I am led to ask myself the question, the statement or the request that Moses made was, Lord, show me your glory. As I thought about that, the question came to my mind, why did Moses, of all of the questions or all of the requests that he could have made of the Lord, why did he request to be shown his glory? Was it just coincidental? Was it incidental? And my conclusion is that it was far more than that. It was the recognition of a basic need that all of us have in the pursuit of this transformed life. That we need to see God in an amazing way. To see him in his glory. Now, oftentimes, and certainly that element is present in this text in Exodus 33, our discussion of this is the Shekinah glory and whether it's possible for human beings to see the Shekinah glory of God and live. And certainly that element is there. But I ask myself this question. As Moses made this request of God, please show me your glory, did God grant his request? 
And the answer to that question is yes, but in a way that oftentimes we do not consider. For immediately following the next chapter and still the same narrative, we read this, the Lord passed before him. And in the process of passing before him, God showed him that which is truly glorious about him. Not just that there is this brilliant Shekinah glory, this light, but that what is truly glorious about him is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And notice, when Moses saw or became or thought about, meditated upon the beauty of the Lord, the glory of the Lord, Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. What was it that caused Moses to make this request? What was it that caused Moses to faithfully serve God in a time when the vast majority of those that he was leading were in rebellion against him. When he faced unimaginable foes in the power of Pharaoh and the might of Egypt, what was it that caused his life to be so transformed? And I submit to you that just like David, it was because he had been granted the ability to see God as he truly is. Coming back to our friend Helen Hemel, or Lemel, I think the tr truth could be, the same truth could be said of her life. One of Helen's best known hymns contains these words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory, his grace, They always say that uh, when you attend a conference or a seminar, if there's one point that you can take with you that affects your life, it's been a successful conference. Many years ago, like many of you, I had the opportunity to attend a counseling conference out in Lafayette. One of the speakers at that conference uh, was a gentleman by the name of Stuart Scott. Stuart Scott is a faculty member at Southern Seminary, and he's a gifted biblical counselor. 
which was the theme of that conference. Stuart Scott shared with us at one of his breakout sessions that when in his counseling, he assigns homework which offers practical help in addressing the behavior, which by the way, in most counseling situations, the thing that brings the counselor or the counselee to the counseling or the counselor is non-transformed living, right? So Stuart Scott shared with us that within that counseling situation, he offers or he gives practical help, homework assigned that addresses the behavior. But recognizing that the behavior is not really the issue. He also assigns a separate assignment. An assignment in which he assigns specific passages of scripture to force the counselee to meditate on the beauty of the Lord. And then to write down his or her observations. Why? Because the how of the transformed life is not found in the behaviors. It's found in God, in our comprehension of God as he truly is. Now you may be asking, does the scriptures really confirm this point that I'm making? And to answer that question, the answer is yes. And I do want you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians. It's not going to be on the screen. Ephesians, there is something that in our English translation, uh, it would probably be impossible to detect. But in the original language, it would be very evident. That of which I speak is simply this. In the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, all of the verbs in the Greek language are indicative, which simply means they're statements. There is one exception it's found in chapter 2 and verse 11, because having said there's one exception, I know your minds immediately go, oh, i got to find that one. Well, it's in the 11th verse of the second chapter, and there, there we read, therefore, remember. And that word remember is a verb, but it's the imperative, which is a command. But it's interesting that even this one command in these first three chapters is a command to think about what's already been said and is about to be said, the statements. Remember these things. Meditate upon them. Think deeply about them. So in the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians, we have nothing but truth. 
nothing but truth about God and his works and the wonder of what we now have in, in God because of Jesus Christ. What follows in chapters 4 through 6, all of the verbs are imperatives. These are the commands. This is what we are to do. And the teaching, the implication is, is, is incredibly distinct and understandable. What God is saying through Paul, and remember this is inspired, this is God's order, this is how God laid it out, not just Paul happened to think it was a good idea, but it was God's instruction to us, God's insight to us, and he says this, it is only as we gaze upon the beauty of God that we have the basis, that we have the means, that we have the inclination for the transformation that is meant to be the characteristic of our lives. So what are the applications? Well, let me just give you a couple of doable things. The first one, because for most of us, our regular quiet time or devotional time is routine or it's habitual, this first one becomes challenge. Allow enough time and use personal devotions time to think about what you are reading. Folks, devotions, quiet time, however you want to label it, is very, very important. But if you're like I am, I find it all too easy to satisfy myself in some sense, in reality, we're not satisfied because there's an emptiness, there's a void. But to simply satisfy ourselves with, I did it. And though I am not advocating an unreasonable amount of time for this time when we simply devote ourselves to gazing upon the beauty of the Lord, I have to tell you that I'm concerned, and I've experienced this in my own life also, when we relegate this time of meditating on the beauty of God to such a short period of time because we're so busy or we're so distracted. And what I am finding in talking to other Christians and in our churches today that there's a number of people who have no time when they gaze upon the beauty of God at all. And for many others who do, it's only for five minutes. And then they're off. So I just want to encourage you that it's, it's worth it. It's essential to our spiritual growth to the realization of our transformation. Allow enough time to use personal devotions to think about what you're reading. And if you're looking for 
an example. Meditate on the works, the nature of God described as that which is, constitutes his glory. Take a passage such as Exodus 34, which we just read, and really stop and think about what is being described as true about God to the point where it grips your heart because transformation is, takes place as something inside of us changes, comes to be understood, that results in the outward behaviors that we call the transformed life. Well, by now you're probably wondering, are we ever going to get to Acts 20? And we are. So let's turn back there with me, if you will. I want to begin by kind of outlining the events, the sequence of events that we find in this first 16 verses of chapter 20. And if you will notice closely uh, on the, and some of you in the back aren't going to be able to see this, by the way, that's just my plug for encouraging people to sit up to the front. Kind of reminds me of the, the joke that I, I once heard. Uh, a bus driver attended a church for the first time. And after the church, the service was over, the pastor said to him, I'm interested in what brings you to this church, to the church today. He said, well, I was just really curious as to see how you get everybody to sit to the back. Because on buses, everybody gets right in the first seats, right? Anyhow, I don't know what brought that up. And that's not even in my notes, but. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on, the, on the screen, this, this text, you'll notice this little thing that's moving over toward Ephesus. For that's where this begins. In chapter 19, there had been an uproar. It's described as an uproar in our text in verse 1. It was that time when there was uh, what is described as, uh, um, as an uproar. And as a result of that, uh, the disciples, those who were siding with Paul, and it was so bad that they encouraged him to uh, not go out into public and uh, really encouraged him to get out of town while the going, or the going was still possible and it was for his, his benefit. And so based upon that uproar, Paul began, and this is his, part of his third missionary journey, he began a journey up toward Macedonia. And you'll see the little arrow going up toward Macedonia. And once he, and as he was going, he was encouraging, their text tells us, individuals all along that route. From Macedonia, he went down into Greece. By the way, the distance by land from Ephesus to Corinth, which is where we believe he ended up, was about 350 miles. That's a long ways to walk. But his intention was when he got to Corinth and he spent some time there uh, in Corinth, 
because he wanted to be in Jerusalem for the Passover, his intention was that he was going to sail from Corinth to Syria, which is down in the, uh, where is that? Yeah, well, you can see where Syria is. Uh, on his way to Jerusalem to be there for Passover. However, word got to him while he was still there in Corinth that very consistent with what he oftentimes experienced, uh, there was a plot that had been formed and when he got on ship, there were going to be those who wished his demise on the ship and the plan was that they were going to assassinate Paul on this journey to Syria. So, based upon this discovered plot against his life, Paul decided to retrace his steps. And so, leaving Corinth, he retraced his steps back up through Greece and to Macedonia, and as far as Philippi, which is kind of up there at the top of the Aegean Sea. There, uh, he was met by Luke, and from there, he and Luke and some others who were following along with him, uh, most commentators say these were people who were there because he was taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem. Uh, I, I question that. Uh, how many people do you need to go along to make sure he's not stealing the money? Uh, I, I think these were truly disciples of his who were followers of his eager to be taught and to be discipled by him. But anyhow, from, uh, from Philippi, uh, most believe that he then went by ship over to Troas. And it's in Troas that the majority of, or the remainder of these verses take place. So with, with that in mind, uh, I, I share that because I think it adds some significance to uh, what we now turn our attention to that being the evidences of this transformed life that we see in Paul. There are probably many that we could mention. Uh, I'm only going to mention two. The first is sim simply this, that what we see in Paul's life were others were more important than himself. Notice in verse one of our text, referring again to this mob scene that had taken place in Ephesus, and by the way, the word uproar is used to describe a hysterical mob. Uh, he is encouraged to get out of town. But what we read in this first verse is, after the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. The significance was simply this. Of all of the people that were gathered there, the one who had, was in the greatest danger was who? Paul. Paul was the focus of the intent to kill him later on. Paul had experienced this persecution in many different places. In addition to that, we find in the 19th chapter that even prior to his departure, 
he had been counseled by well-meaning friends, get out of town. Your life is in danger. Leave immediately. And so he had the counsel of other people. And if he were thinking about himself, he had an acceptable way out. Because he could simply say, I'm simply doing, I am being wise and following the counsel of these godly men and women who are telling me to get out of town. But what we see in Paul's heart and in his life is indicated in this first verse. That he didn't leave Ephesus until he had encouraged, ministered to those people. That's unusual, and that's a challenge, and yet it is indicative of a transformed life. By the way, uh, we might say, well, occasionally someone might do that. I would submit to you, as many of you know, that it was characteristic of Paul. Turn back to Acts chapter 18 uh, in Corinth where he had previously been. There again, that we read of uh, an opposition that resulted in great uh, conflict and, and danger to Paul. Uh, the, the Jews got upset. In verse 12, we read, uh, when Galilee was proconsul in Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. So again, he's facing life-threatening situations. Jump down to verse 18. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers. One of the characteristics of a transformed life in our experience is one who, despite what it may cost, is more motivated and more concerned and takes action that is going to benefit others. By the way, is that not exactly what Christ's likeness looks like? Not incidental commitment but extraordinary commitment that may cost us more than we really want to think about. But it's consistent with that which is a transformed life. The other evidence is that he stayed on mission. He stayed on mission. For in our text, we read that First of all, he stayed there in Ephesus, and he encouraged them. And then he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. And when he had gone through these regions, remember the map that we looked at, when he had gone through these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. So here's Paul, who has been threatened with his very life, he stops before he leaves the place of greatest danger, this case being Ephesus, to minister to those other people. And then as he leaves that city, 
rather than being consumed with, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What's happening? Where is God and all of this? He simply stayed on mission. For everywhere that he went, he continued to encourage them. The word encouraged is a Greek word paraclete, and we're familiar with that. It means literally to come alongside. There are many ways in which we can encourage others. Uh, again, in our ESV translation, uh, the translators have overlooked this or whatever, but in the original language in verse 2, the, word, the Greek word logos is included, which would indicate that the encouragement that Paul gave to these people uh, wasn't so much that he met their physical or temporal needs, he wasn't providing a meal for them, things like that, but the encouragement took the form of what he shared with them, his words to them. As I thought about this, I concluded that there are many ways that we can encourage, but oftentimes when we think of encouraging people with words, our thoughts turn or gravitate toward uh, showing empathy, caring, comfort. And, and those things are good. Uh, those kind of words is we, we say to people, oh, I can't imagine what it must be like. Oh, I'm, I, I'm so sorry to hear that. We are empathizing with them. We are attempting to comfort them and to, to show care for them. And, and those things are good. But there's another aspect of encouragement uh, that is not quite as common. And by the way, this empathy, this caring, this comfort, uh, perhaps is more common because uh, the need is perceived as being more immediate and therefore is somewhat more natural. There's also the reality that when we encourage people in this manner, there's a greater likelihood that it's going to be welcomed. Because the other way that we can encourage people is urging them to persevere, to not quit, to stay on mission. Some of you may know, uh, I've had the, uh, I guess it was a privilege, I used to be a marathon runner. Uh, a marathon is running 26.2 miles, which is a significant amount of distance. On those occasions when I ran those marathons, uh, I noticed something that I think is very relevant to this issue of encouragement. There were literally thousands of people who had come out to stand by the sidelines, oftentimes in terrible cold weather, because here in Columbus it's always in the end of October. And that uh, I remember uh, sometimes the, the temperature would be in the 30s. 
And these people are standing out there. They're not doing anything to stay warm. The only reason they're there is to encourage people, the runners. And what I observed is this, that at the beginning of that marathon distance, everybody was cheering and clapping and hooray, go, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're all excited. Well, one of the realities of marathon running is that typically, not universally, but certainly something that I experienced, is around mile 20, you hit what they call the wall. The wall is that time when physically you have expended all of your physical energies, all of your resources. And not only have you expended all of your physical resources, but you are totally aware that this has happened. And so when you hit the wall, you are physically drained. And you are mentally aware. And so the battle now becomes not only physical, but it also becomes mental. And what I observed with these people who have come to encourage is at the beginning, as I said, it's all this cheering and clapping of hands and yes, yes, yes. As you approach the end of that 26 miles, there are still many people there. And you know what you hear most often? You're looking good. And I'm thinking, <laughs> you have no idea. I know I'm not looking good. I certainly know I'm not feeling good. I certainly know that it's got to be pathetic. In fact, there were actually some cases where as we approached the finish line, people were staggering, and I still heard them proclaiming from the sidelines, you're looking good! And I thought, how ridiculous. You know what meant the most? You can do this. Don't quit. You're almost there. Persevere. That's the kind of encouragement that based upon what we read about Paul's meeting with the Ephesian elders later in this 20th chapter, that I believe Paul must have been doing as he traveled in all of these areas, encouraging them. Don't give up. Don't quit. I know that persecution is present in our midst. I know that there are many trials and difficulties in life. Don't give up. Stay on mission. And folks, I'm just reminded of this. In the book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, we are, we're, there we're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But the purpose in that is not just to get every, make sure that churches are full and all of that. The, the purpose in that is that we are to stir up one another to love and good deeds. 
And that idea of stirring up must be similar, if not identical, to this idea of encouraging people not to give up. Don't quit. As we live in a day when there are things about our society and our world that we just shake our heads at, at and say, 10 years ago I'd have never thought this was even remotely possible. Isn't it one of the temptations to give up, to quit? And I think there would be great benefit for us when we come together as a church to purposely consider, and that's also in that Hebrews text, how we might, with certain individuals that God would bring to mind, how in our conversation with them that day as we assemble together, how we might encourage them in their quest for and living out of this truly transformational life. Too often, and we're all in the same boat in this, that as soon as the word is given that we're dismissed, our conversation turns to what's for lunch, or how are the Reds doing, or how are the Buckeyes doing, all of which is not necessarily wrong, but God has called us to gather together to stir one another up, to love and to good deeds. And one of the ways that we do that is to encourage. Well, as you probably noticed, in, beginning in verse 7, we come to this incident that took place uh, with Eutychus. And our time is already done, and that's all right, because quite honestly, uh, I asked myself the question, why, why did God include this event? And I'm not sure. So it's probably best that I don't even uh, speculate. So uh, there's, if you want a sermon on Eutychus and someone has rightly deserved, the only thing that we know about Eutychus is that he fell asleep in church. Someone in rebuttal said, yeah, and if you're going to preach for four hours, you better have the ability to raise the dead. <laughs> the only thing that I can conclude about why, why God included this is putting it in the historical context of, of this, that at the time of the writing of the book of Acts, uh, just as Jesus performed miracles and by performing those miracles, he authenticated his credentials, which then authenticated his message. That is, only God can do these kind of things. And if it's, therefore, Jesus must be God, and therefore what he is saying needs to be listened to. Well, the same was true of Paul at that time in history. His message was being challenged, and for many people, they questioned his credentials. So perhaps the reason that this whole incident is recorded here in Acts chapter 20 is, is for that very reason. 
that it is another example of the credentials of Paul and therefore the authentication of his message. And we're just going to leave that whole section for your further consideration and study. But in conclusion, uh, what, are, what are some of the takeaways from what we've shared this morning? Uh, they're these. Desire and resolve alone will not result in the transformed life. Though it's not the soul enablement, meditating on the truths of and about God are key disciplines to a changed heart and therefore a changed life. And finally, a consistent, and I use the word consistent, I'm not implying that the transformed life is a perfect life, but a consistent, that which then becomes characteristic when people look at us and when people think about us, they notice an incredible difference, an incredible transformation, that that is possible. And the proof of that is what we see in Paul, even throughout the book of Acts, and particularly in this portion of Acts chapter 20. Would you join with me in a word of prayer? Father, we and I come to you and pray that you would help us and that we would accept responsibility for that which we have been taught. To whom much has been given shall much be required. That if, in fact, as your word seems to teach us, that though we desire to honor you, though we desire to live differently, it simply will not happen apart from being in awe of you, which results in that outer difference. So we thank you for the instruction of your word. And Father, we would ask of you this morning that you would bring to mind the practical applications. And because you're faithful, we believe that you will. At that moment, may we be willing to obey and act to the glory and the honor of the one who is extremely unimaginably worthy our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.